the uh, United States Constitution makes stipulation that from time to time there would be a State of the Union address uh, presented to Congress by the sitting President of the United States updating the citizens on the situation in the country and also uh, making recommendations as the President as to how things could be improved. Well, I certainly know that I'm not the President of the United States, and I know that you're not the Congress, but I am your pastor and you are uh, my people who are first and foremost God's people. In the beginning of a new year of 2019, we've uh, looked a little bit already last week at this State of the Church sermon, but this sermon is a continuation of the first sermon on the State of the Church address based on Revelation 2 and 3. In the previous sermon, we have noted that the best uh, tracking device that we can have as a people of God, a portion of the people of God, is to say, for me to live as Christ, and for that to be reflected in our marriages, in our parenting, in our business life, in our community involvements, in our church service, etc., in our money. Uh, to, for me to live as Christ is the moniker that should be written over all of our redeemed lives and therefore collectively over our entire church, uh, the incredible body of Christ. We've also pointed out that any whole is made up of its parts. And so each and every one of us who are part of this assembly have a significant part to play in setting the spiritual temperature for the overall body. Uh, you matter. I matter. We all matter. We have a parts to play. And so this sermon is both for the congregation and each and every one of you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I can assure you that this message is for the pastor in the pulpit, that I am in need of uh, a response to this message as much as any of you are. Just by way of quick review, we've looked at... Uh, three churches previously. The previous message looked at Ephesus, Smyrna... And Pergamum. We noted at that time that two of these three churches were uh, corrected by Christ and one was commended. And we've said that we can see uh, Calvary Bible Church to some degree in each of the three churches that we saw last week. Similarly, I think we're going to be able to say that to some degree we can see Calvary Bible Church in each of the four churches which will be covered in this particular message uh, in these moments. Again, Saying and living for me to live as Christ is going to be a huge part of the uh, endeavor to stay on track in the will of God as revealed to us in the word of God. So let's dive in at uh, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 18, which is the church at Thyatira. Just to remind ourselves, these are literal churches that existed in the first century around the Mediterranean basin. Real Christians like you and I worshipped in these churches, served in these churches, and uh, they are not symbolic. They are literal ancient churches. And so the message to the church at Thyatira begins at Revelation chapter 2 and verse 18. And to the angel of the church of, in Thyatira write, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. 
and I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. And he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with an iron, rod of iron, and the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The problem in ancient Thyatira perhaps is the problem in our church today. And this is the problem. They were getting by without being holy. They were getting by without being holy. Getting by is making one's own way, but being holy is only wanting God's way. Getting by is finding the bare minimum, but being holy is laying down the maximum to Christ. And so we have to ask ourselves with the Holy Spirit's investigative work, are we in any measure just getting by and not really being holy. There are certain areas of the world where this concept of getting by without being holy is not really a problem. They are the uh, closed Muslim countries, China, Cameroon, India, Indonesia, North Korea, Russia, etc. The places where the church, the body and the bride of Christ is expressed in Countries that persecute Jesus, persecute his cross, persecute his church. In these countries of persecution, there is no problem in the assembled believers of these countries when it comes to settling for getting by. They know full well they can't get by. They need to be holy. They need Christ. They need his word. And they need his brother's and sisters who are there, brothers and sisters. So in the persecuted church, the temptation is not to just get by with regard to disregarding being holy. In the persecuted church, the, the knowledge and the practice is to be holy in all areas, whatever the cost and the risk. And so it's the affluent church, the church that is at peace, the church that could get by without being holy, that can be tempted to just get by and not be holy. I trust that's not our testimony today. Historically, in Thyatira, it was an interesting city. It was a city that was uh, full of trade guilds. We don't talk in terms of trade guilds. We talk in terms of trade unions today. It was a trade guild or a trade union uh, city that dealt in textiles, expensive Textiles, the production of expensive textiles, draperies, dresses, the like, carpets. 
And so there were a lot of trade guilds in ancient Thyatira. And the problem was that these trade guilds had in their DNA, in their fabric, no pun intended, these trade guilds demanded that the members of the trade guild be involved in sexual perversions. If you wanted to be in a trade guild in Thyatira, you would have to indulge in sexual perversion to be part of the club. And if you didn't make yourself a member of a trade guild in ancient city of Thyatira, you didn't know how you were going to make a living or how you are going to put bread on your table. And so the rub for the Thyatiran Christians in the first century was the rub between getting by, joining the guild, and sinning, or not getting by, but being holy and refusing membership in the guild and having to trust God for everything that you needed to have as your basics of life. Getting by or being holy. When I look in, over the landscape of cities in the evangelical church in Nassau, there's a lot of churches, as you well know, thousands of churches. I don't pretend to know all of them. I don't even fully know this one I love. But when I look over this landscape and I see maybe some examples of Christians in Nassau getting by without being holy, I think of um, persons who lie because it serves their own purposes to do so. Or those who conduct business as Christians who do so unethically. Or making promises, big promises to one another that we just don't get around to fulfilling. Could it be that there are some believers in our assembly who owe money to other believers in this assembly and you're not communicating about it? You're not paying on it. It's just a festering debt that's souring a relationship within our assembly. That ought not to be. It's not getting by, but it's being holy. That needs to be fixed. Getting by and, and not being holy. Uh, there's something I call missionary dating. Uh, I'm all for missionaries, and when I was single, I was all for dating, but I'm not for missionary dating. Missionary dating is when a Christian, usually a woman it seems, can't find uh, a date in the, in the family of God that she is interested in. So she finds a man outside of the faith who is not a Christian, and she's going to win him to Christ by being his date. That is just so reckless because men have a way of lying. Men have a way of uh, pretending to be something they're not. And if I had a count on how many precious sisters in Christ have come to me after they've married that guy, they were going to win to Christ when they dated him. And he said he was a Christian before the wedding ceremony. But then after they got married, he admitted he wasn't a Christian. He just said that to get a nice Christian wife. That's fraudulent. It's wrong. But don't even put yourself in a position, whether you're a man or a woman who's single, do not do missionary dating. That's getting by without being holy. You know the only thing worse than being single and wanting to be married? To be married to the wrong person and want to be single. That's a bigger problem. We also can get into a mode of, of getting by but not being holy, becoming careless with uh, attendance in our worship services. We would like to see stronger attendance in both the 8 and the 11 a.m. services. 
in the days ahead, that people would, uh, our members and our attendees would make an effort and would look forward to being together with brothers and sisters in Christ and would really, really have to have a very serious impedance for not to be here. We're going to attract try to track your attendance better, not to scold anyone, but to just, if someone is absent, we want to be better uh, uh, aware of that so we can reach out to you and say, are you okay? Can we help you or serve you in any way? We're going to have some pads produced that will pass down the rows soon where everyone just ticks off that they're there. Newcomers can give their information. But it helps us as leaders to know not only who was here on a Sunday, but who wasn't. And so we can check to make sure you're okay because we love you and we want you to be doing well. All right, so these are just some examples potentially of getting by without being holy. Solution to that, be able to say it and to mean it and to live it for me to live as Christ. Christ is not an add-on. Christ is life. That's the way we cure that getting by but not being holy. The next church is Sardis. Sardis is found in the third chapter of Revelation, the first six verses, and this is what the angel said to that ancient church. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which are about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, and keep it, and repent. If, therefore, you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Back then in Sardis, the church at Sardis, their problem was uh, a problem that we can see in modern-day churches, I hope not in our church, and that is pretending spirituality. Uh, pretending spirituality. It was very, very sad that the church at Sardis in the first century, uh, the majority of those persons were not even Christians. They were actors. They were pretenders. They were fakers. Uh, They knew a lot. They knew the script. They knew when to sit. They knew when to stand. They knew when to sing. They knew when to share. But they didn't know the Savior. And it is possible in a church like ours and other churches as well that we have pretending people, pretending spiritual people. They're not really spiritual in Christ. They're pretenders. They put on a good show. They pose as a certain person on a Sunday and are a different person the rest of the week. Um, They play at church. Of course, that kind of a charade may fool some of the people and some of the pastors some of the time, but that kind of a charade will never fool Almighty God. The unconverted in the church, the unsaved, the not at peace with God yet in the church, the still unforgiven, uh, those who wear spiritual camouflage to, to bl- blend in with those who truly are spiritual, it becomes what 
Jesus taught of in the Gospels of a, of a wheat and a tear situation that one day there was going to have to be a divine separating between the real and the phony. It becomes a real sheep and the goat situation where, again, Jesus is going to have to judge those who are legitimate followers of his and those who are not. And so we don't want to be that kind of church. We want to be real McCoy uh, followers of Jesus, genuinely born-again people, people who you, what you see is what you get, what you see on Sunday is what you get Monday to Saturday, um, that we're people of the Bible, people who are following Christ to the best of our abilities with joy and commitment and exertion. That's what we want to be. And so reminds me of this true story in New York City. Years ago, there was a car parked in a no-parking tow-away zone, and a lady was uh, walking to her workplace early morning to the morning commute. She was walking, and she saw this car parked in the no-parking zone in a tow-away zone, and there was a man behind the wheel of the car. And she said to herself, boy, you better move it sooner. It's going to get towed. Well, she worked her whole day in her office, and she packed up her stuff, and she went to walk back to her apartment, and she walked by that car on her way home from work, and the same car was sitting in the same no-parking zone, tow-away zone, and she went up to the window, and she knocked on the window to tell the driver he better move, and he was dead. He'd been shot. There are some who come into a church, and they look okay, but it's only when we nudge them, we see they're still spiritually dead. Until they know Christ, they can't respond to the sermons or the challenges or the opportunities for Christian service because they're not yet spiritually alive. They're slumped over at the wheel of their life in spiritual deadness. Trust that's not any of us. There's a person I've been dealing with and working with that... Um, has been connected to our church loosely for 52 years. And he heard all the sermons that he was here to hear, and he knows what this church believes and stands for. 52 years, he never trusted Jesus to be his Savior, and he'd tell you that. And two weeks ago, he trusted Jesus to be his Savior. We thank God for that. But, you know, for 52 years, he came in and out amongst us and um, looked like us, but wasn't of us because he wasn't of Christ, and now he is. So I thank God with you for that. The church at Philadelphia. Philadelphia, um, that's verses 7 to 13 of Revelation 3. And to the angel of a church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens, and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan. By the way, just think of it, that back then there was an organized religion of Satanists, and so there is today, voodoo and Wicca and the like. But he says to them in 9, Behold, I will cause the, uh, those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. By the way, that's a very good verse 
to point to to teach that the rapture of the church will occur before the seven years of tribulation. Here we are in Revelation chapter 3, which just precedes chapters 4 through 19. Revelation chapters 4 through 19 depict the literal future seven years of tribulation on the earth. And here's a verse tucked right on the front porch of all of that, saying to an ancient church in Philadelphia, you're going to be kept from that. You're going to be kept from the trouble of testing. And so will we because of God's grace. But we need to be busy occupying until Christ comes for his bride. We don't know when that will be. could be very, very soon. Going back to verse 10. But because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come on the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have in order that no one take away your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God, and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here in the ancient church of Philadelphia, this is only the second of two churches of the seven in these uh, chapters in Revelation that are commended. Philadelphia was commended by Christ. Christ didn't find anything he wanted or needed to correct at the church of Philadelphia. So obviously, uh, we ought to find ways that we ought to copy this church. This is a church to emulate. Uh, and what ways should we uh, imitate the church at ancient Philadelphia? Well, at least three ways. The first way is that they were small in number. They were small in number. By the way, do you know what the average church size is in America? The average local church in America is under 100 persons. Surprising, isn't it? But I don't think stats are kept here in the Commonwealth of the Bahamas on church attendance that same way. But I would guess that the average church attendance in the Commonwealth of the Bahamas is less than 100. I'm just educated guess. The point is that small isn't bad. Small is good. Uh, we are a church of about 300, give or take, and that's big to some people and it's small to other people. Uh, but we're certainly not to copy Philadelphia to keep ourselves small intentionally, you know, to have this holy huddle where we never share the gospel, we never get out of our comfort zone, we never share the love of Jesus Christ through word or deed, we never see anybody getting saved. We don't want to do that. Not at all. We want to be people of faith who share faith in faith, to see others come to faith. We want to be an evangelistic church. We want to grow by conversion growth. We ought to celebrate new converts to Christ coming into our church the most. We love transfer growth, biological growth. Those are good things. But the greatest thing is to see a person translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus' most wonderful light called the church and getting integrated with us and we get to love them, and they get to love us, and we get to nurture them and help them to grow not just old in Christ, but up into the full stature of Christ. That's what we're all about. And so we don't want to uh, despise the day of small things. We're not a mega church. It's okay we're not a mega church. We can make a dent in the devil's work, and we can make an impact for Christ here and through our missionaries around the world. But here is something we can and should imitate from the ancient church in Philadelphia. The scriptures were central to their lives. The scriptures were central to their lives. 
And secondly, we should copy, they stood for Jesus while facing coming persecution. And so let me just expand on these a little bit. Ours should be a focus on the Bible, both in our corporate life and these times we gather. The Bible should have a prominent place, and I shouldn't talk to you about Time Magazine and all these book reviews. We should look at the scriptures together and understand what God has said so we can do what God has said. Um, So we should be Bible-focused in our gathering. We also should be Bible-focused in our marriages, husbands and wives in the Bible together. We should be Bible-focused in our parenting where we take our precious children as gifts on loan to us from God to God's word regularly, daily. We should be Bible-focused. The interesting thing is that when we have the proper Bible focus, it positively impacts our giving to our church and our witnessing to the lost. Lifeway, which is a major uh, American evangelical uh, book-distributing company by the Southern Baptists, Lifeway did a 10-year research study This is what they found. Bible engagement is the number one spiritual discipline for growth. So they found that if someone wants to grow spiritually, the number one spiritual discipline of them all to promote spiritual growth is engagement with the Bible, personal engagement with the Bible, not just on Sundays when the preacher's preaching, but all through the week. The study goes on, and Bible engagement affects every other discipline. That's saying that if I get properly engaged in Scripture, then that will engage me in prayer, that will engage me in uh, fellowship and other spiritual disciplines. So being Bible-focused is very crucial to spiritual health. So just to reiterate, the LifeWay 10-year study, Bible engagement is the number one spiritual discipline for growth, and Bible engagement affects every other spiritual discipline Here it is. Persons who engage in the Bible give more, go more, and evangelize more. Makes sense. What fiancé separated from her fiancé wouldn't bother to read the emails from the faraway fiancé? Of course she's going to read them. Because in reading the emails from her fiancé, who's far afield, she's going to learn to know her fiancé better, and she's going to therefore be able to love him even more than she does already. And so we are fiancés of the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, who's seated at the Father's right hand right now, and is coming back for us, his bride, at any time. No prophecy is yet to be fulfilled before Jesus Christ comes back for his bride, you and me, to take us to be with him. And so we would be prudent, we would be wise to read the emails that Christ has sent to us, we call scripture, Bible, often so we could get to know him better in being separated from him for a time, and we would love him more, and we would tell others about him more. That's what's going to boost giving in our church and witnessing the gospel, to be engaged better in the Bible. The second thing about Philadelphia to emulate is their readiness to serve Christ despite looming persecution. Uh, I have questions that are maybe your questions, or my questions are your questions. Is persecution going to come to the Bahamas? 
Is same-sex marriage going to come to the Bahamas? Is gender twisting and mangling going to come to the Bahamas? Is legalized abortion going to come to the Bahamas? Is radical Islam going to come to the Bahamas? I don't have a crystal ball. I pray and I work that they won't, but I think it's probably likely that they will. After all, the name of Jesus Christ is either a cause for gladness or madness around the world. Not much in between. And we're not home yet in this beautiful land we live in. We're not home yet. We're not safely home yet to heaven. In fact, we are behind the enemy's lines. So I wouldn't be surprised. I pray and work against it. But will I be ready to serve Christ if that persecution is not on the television in some other part of the world, but that persecution is on Collins Avenue walking through the back doors one Sunday? Will I be ready, prepared to serve Jesus in this pulpit if someone walks in with a gun? The church of Sardis was commended by the risen Christ because they were ready to serve even though persecution loomed for them. They had a Bible focus, and they had a persecution-proof readiness to serve Jesus. I pray that our church family will have a Bible focus and a persecution-proof readiness to serve Jesus. For me to live as Christ is what we want to be saying. Laodicea may be the most famous of the seven churches, the last of the seven, maybe the most well-known. Uh, Laodicea, 314 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds that you were neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. I'll just interject. This well-loved and well-used verse is not an evangelism verse. This is not a verse that we share to someone who is not yet a Christian and say, Jesus is at the heart door of your heart and knocking and wanting to come in to be your savior. That's not the context here. This is a disciple follower of Christ verse given to a church of lukewarm followers of Christ who needed to change. And the visual, the metaphor here in verse 20 is to Christians, not to lost people. It's to um, the church, not the unchurched. And it is Jesus speaking, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Jesus Christ wants us to overcome our lukewarmness so that we would welcome fellowship with him in a constant abiding fashion so that he would shape our priorities, our values, our expenditures, our time allotments, our money, our everything. Jesus wants to come into your hearts and my heart and to dine with us, to converse with us, to bless us so that we would be a blessing. Verse 21, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as also I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so the problem uh, in ancient Laodicea is the problem of lukewarmness, spiritual listlessness. Ancient Laodicea was a wealthy city. It was a place of banking. It had a production of wool clothing, and it was known for its health care therapies and for its health care products. Laodicea was famous for, on the one hand, healing hot springs, that persons who were sick would come to Laodicea and get into those boiling hot springs for healing purposes. But it also was blessed, Laodicea was, with hot, uh, fresh, very cold, excellent quality drinking water springs. So you could have a Perrier in a hot tub in Laodicea. It was the good life. The problem was that the Laodicean church defined the good life in terms of things they could buy with the money they made from the wool garment industry and the healthcare industry. They took the monies they made in those industries and bought material things that wouldn't last forever and made them to be more important than Jesus Christ was in their hearts. They were lukewarm. You know, today, it is as it was, that there are good purposes for hot water. There's washing or making a cup of tea. You need hot water to do those kinds of things. There's also good purposes for cold water. Cold water quenches our thirst, and it also reduces swelling. If we have an accident, an injury, you put it in ice water to reduce the swelling. But on the other hand, that hot water has good uses and cold water has good uses, lukewarm water is pretty much useless. It neither heals nor does it refresh. Drink enough lukewarm water and exercise and you will vomit. I don't recommend you try that. Uh, but it's serious and ought to make us sit up and take notice that it's possible for a church, for born-again redeemed children of Christ, to make him sick to his stomach, to make him queasy, that should really make us want to do anything and everything we can that that would never happen because of us. Um, one of the ways that lukewarmness can show up in a church is through poor financial giving. Let me just say before I get into this, as the pastor of the church and as the other pastors of the church and as the deacons of the church, as the collective leadership body, 
None of us knows what any of us give to the Lord. It's between you and the Lord. That's respected. It always will be. I've never known what anybody's given in a church I've pastored. I don't know now, and I never will. I don't want to. But we as leaders can see when what the overall impact of what we give is, isn't enough. We fall short last year of our giving targets each Sunday by $4,000 a Sunday. That accumulated by the end of 18, 2018, that we were in arrears uh, over $100,000. So that sounds insurmountable, but it isn't. I believe that if each of us would give a tithe, 10% of what God has entrusted to us faithfully, uh, Sunday by Sunday, that money would not be an issue, that we'd have more than we need. I really believe that. So I challenge you and I challenge me that we all get on board uh, with an ambition, a promise, a goal, a commitment to our Lord, between us and our Lord, that we will give 10% each Sunday. And you know, I pay the most attention to the investments I've made with my savings. If I've invested in something, I don't really care to track how it's doing. But the little bit of money I have to invest, I track how those investments are doing because I have an interest in how those investments are doing. And when we tithe, it's logical that we have a prayer interest in this assembly and we have a participation interest in this assembly by being involved in ministry. So I challenge you, I challenge me, that let's, uh, let's improve upon that with the Lord's help and let's see what God can do when, when each of us would tithe. Oh, one more thing. We want to tithe first in a week, not last. We don't want to be like the two little guys that were on Montague uh, Dock and they, their moms had given them two quarters for church offering. The one quarter was, uh, excuse me, two quarters. One was for church offering and one was for candy. And the one little boy got up to the edge of the, the dock and one of the quarters fell in the sea and he goes, boy, look at that. God's quarter's going right to the bottom. <laughs> we don't want to be like that, right? We want to give God his first fruit um, as we're able. 